Portions of the following program may be pre-recorded. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. My eyes are dry. My faith is old. My heart is hard. My prayers are cold And I know how I ought to be Alive to you And dead to me What can be done For an old heart like mine Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew in the wine of your blood. My eyes are dry. My faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold, and I know how I ought to be alive to you and dead to me. message today is suffocating indifference. Suffocating indifference. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you quicken the word, your word, that it will enter into our hearts and accomplish the work for which you sent it. Lord, we come before you confessing our weakness but also claiming your strength, confessing our sickness, but claiming your healing by the blood at Jesus' cross. Thank you, our mighty Father. I pray in your holy name. Amen. Joel, the first chapter. Hear this, you elders. Listen. All who live in the land, has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? The book of Joel, the prophet, is not there to impress anyone. We don't know when the prophetic book was written. There is no indication in the book of any kingship that we could identify a time period, we simply know he came speaking boldly to Israel. And the message is as live today as it was then. There is a landmark event or events taking place in Israel 
that he is now speaking to. And he's saying, has anything like this ever happened before? We are also at that landmark event in American history. This morning, as I drove out of my drive and began to make my way here, I looked up in the sky, as I often do, and there were chemtrails tracing across the sky. What's a chemtrail? It is a purposeful spraying by the American government for geoengineering of our weather. There are many top scientists who are claiming that the drought we are now experiencing in California is a result of geoengineering. Most of the clouds that were in the sky this morning came from airplanes spraying the chemicals into the air. As they spray those chemicals, it traps the heat and dries out the planet. And the weather is changed. If you doubt me on this, I encourage you to go to the internet and simply Google chemtrail. You'll find very reputable scientific reports describing what's going on. If you look at ISIS, the Islamic State, our president sent men, munitions, arms to train and equip those that we now call ISIS. They were the moderate rebels in Syria. And so now our president has decided that the answer to ISIS is to again go to Syria and equip the so-called moderate Islamists. That doesn't quite make sense to me. I see a geoengineering of our entire world's culture. When I look at the financial markets, I hear on the news that everything is progressing nicely. But when I listen to the reports that are coming out, that are being spun into something wonderful, our economy is in fact continuing to crash. And poverty and homelessness is dramatically rising. The warning out of California this last week by several rice ranchers. Go to the store and buy large bags of rice because soon rice will not be available. And then the correction came. Yes, it will be available in foreign markets. But it will be tainted with chemicals that will make you sick. So buy American rice while you can get it. I've never heard these kinds of things in my life. In my lifetime, I've never before heard of the government stepping in and spraying poison in the air to try to engineer the weather. I've never heard of of droughts like this. Oh, I remember hearing as a kid about the Dust Bowl. As a child, I drove through that area with my parents and And many homes were sitting vacant, blown, empty. But today it's much larger. 
Elboa, this horrific virus that is cutting its way through the nations in Africa. Liberia, the president of Liberia said last night that he's concerned that his whole nation will collapse because so many people are going to die from this disease. Sarah Leon is in grave danger of having a decimating plague, killing thousands upon thousands of people. I never heard of anything like this before. I've never seen so many wars and rumors of wars in my lifetime. Oh, I remember as a child hearing about from my father the the great second world war to end all wars and then the Korean conflict and then the Vietnam conflict. But now the conflict is in many nations, all of them being stirred up by Islamists. Every war that I know of that's being fired today is being fired by Islamists. I look at all of this, and then I look at America. The federal government is saying that every family in America, through FEMA, should have six months' supply of food and water in your house. Can you imagine what would happen today if the trucks stopped rolling? If the grocery stores in your neighborhood stopped being supplied? They have about a three-day normal supply of groceries. If the truck stopped rolling within a week, there would be no food in any grocery store in Washington, D.C. What would you do? How would you eat? What would you eat? I've never heard that kind of thing before. I've never heard our government say anything like that before. I'm astounded. This is America. The land of plenty. And we're being warned by our government to stash six months of food and water. But because we've heard these things growing in a crescendo of sound. And because there are so many things to distract us from these horrific things that are being spoken about. We relax. And we're concerned about our own little world. And we're not too worried. Because I've got food at home. I can go to the grocery store. I can go shopping. Unless you've lost your job. And you can't find another. And you have to join the growing tent village. Over by the Hilton Chapel. Where now there are hundreds of men and women living in tents with children. Because they can't find work. These tent cities are literally springing up all over the nation. In this Washington D.C. area we don't see the full impact. But you go to some parts of the country and the malls have closed. Or if they are open, as you walk through them, store after store is closed, boarded up. There is a suffocating indifference 
that Satan has brought upon our hearts to what's happening in the world as though it will not happen to me. And I'm always going to be able to live the life I'm now living. One man I spoke with this last week said, Pastor, I'm not worried about that. I've got my, I've got my government retirement. I'm making 50% of what I made before, and I have two retirements coming to me. I'm a double dipper. I don't need to worry. I said, no, you don't need to worry until the American dollar crashes. And you don't get your pension anymore because America is out of money. I spoke to another family and he said, Pastor, I'm getting Social Security every month. I said, what are you going to do when you don't get Social Security? Well, that's not going to happen. There's a Social Security fund. There's money put away in the government for Social Security. I said, no, there's not. There's no money put away. The Social Security funds that you've paid out through the years have gone into the general fund and an IOU has been placed in the fund. There is no fund. That's a mirage. If the government goes bankrupt, there is no more check for you coming. I look at all of these things happening and when you bring them all together, we're facing a crisis in this nation of monumental proportions. It is life-threatening. And then we have to ask, where is God in this? What is he doing? When the dollar-denominated assets disappear into thin air, when the banks suddenly close, and when they reopen the following week, if you had $1,000 in the bank, now you may have... 30 or 40 dollars in the bank the american dollar totally revalued then what are you going to do this is what was happening to israel locusts had come that was the symbol at least that he used the locusts have come and they have stripped everything bare and he says in a threefold call to grief verse 5 This is Joel 1, verse 5. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all of you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it's been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. It has the teeth of a lion and fangs of a lioness. Then verse 8 is the second call to, to grieve. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the husband of her youth. And then verse 13, put on sackcloth, O priests, and mourn, wail, you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. Now try to hear what I'm going to say to you. This suffocating blanket that has come over our minds and our hearts that allow us to assume that we can continue to live the way we are now, that we will be safe in our sins, is a deception of the enemy. And there is only going to be one way to begin to break free from that deception. 
And that is to grieve and wail and mourn. And we can't manufacture that in ourselves. Can you cry on demand? I can't. I'm not an actor. I have to live out of my heart. Honestly, who I am before God. The problem is, most of us have sinned so against the Lord that our minds have been seared. We've watched too many murders on television. We've watched too many violent escapades. We've, we've filled our mind with the music of darkness. Everywhere we go, we are bombarded by all of the images of our culture. And so to come before God, we don't have the ability to even begin to focus long enough to get in touch with what we feel inside. In fact, most don't want to know what you feel inside. You want to just get on and move on and move on and move on and get done what you want to do so you can have the lifestyle you want to have. Our lifestyle is going to be over soon. The American lifestyle is not going to last. So it's time to stop and begin to do what Joel says. To grieve. What would it take for you to grieve? When over 2,000 men are stripped down to their shorts and marched out into the desert and machine gunned down and buried in a common grave as ISIS recently did. Or when a man, an innocent man, is put on video and his head is cut off. Or when a baby is beheaded. We've seen these horrible images. We hear about these horrible things. And we revolt in our heart. But it doesn't touch where we feel. Because we've seen so much in our culture. And we've heard so much with videos. We've watched too many movies. We've watched too much television, and so we've been seared. So we're not sensitive. I mean, I can remember my dad, who was not a a watcher of television. He wouldn't let one in the family. I remember listening on the news one night. He always listened to Lowell Thomas. I remember him just sitting there listening to a horrific event that had just transpired. And my dad, this big six foot three, 250 pound man full of muscle and strength sat there and wept like a baby because his heart was so broken by the horrible thing that had just happened to this family but I'm I can listen all day long to what's happening everywhere and I have no tears why because my heart's been seared I've grown used to tragedy I've grown used to trauma our culture loves violence And sex. Our culture loves darkness. And not one of us in this room has not been influenced by that darkness. We've all been touched by it. My grandpa was not even a Christian. But if he could come and live and hear what's going on now. I can tell you my grandpa would weep. It would break his heart. And he was a man's man. Those in the old years could not even begin to imagine 
the searing power of our modern technology. So what do we do? Well, it's obvious we need to grieve. It's also obvious that our hearts have been seared so we can't grieve. So where do we start? Joel says, verse 14, declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Now, Joel does a strange thing. He goes back and forth between current events in Israel and the final end day judgment of God. It's hard to decipher when he's speaking of which. But when he says, alas, that day for the day of the Lord is near, it will come like destruction from the almighty. He is speaking about the end of time, which you and I are now facing. Verse 19, to you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the open pastures, and flames have burned up the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up. The fire has devoured the open pastures. That's what's happening right now in California. And California, by the way, is our breadbasket. The almonds. The pecans. They're threatened now. This year may be the last year of crop. If rain does not come, the trees will die. There's not going to be enough rain to sustain them. Some farmers are taking the small allotment of water that they have. And instead of planting crops, they are now selling that water to other farmers at a very high price. Because they can make more money selling their water than they can in trying to raise crops with a little bit of water they have. It says, blow the trumpet in Zion, chapter 2, verse 1. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old or ever will be in ages to come. Verse 12, chapter 2. Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? Pity and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders. Gather the children. Those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep before the temple porch and altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? I've been struggling with this issue for some days, some weeks. And I've been saying, Lord, what's the answer? The tears don't flow from my face. Occasionally they do. 
For the most part, they don't. Because I'm accustomed to what's happening. I'm used to what's happening. It doesn't shock me anymore. That's not an adequate answer. So I'll tell you what I'm doing. I am setting apart time every day to go before the Lord and say, Lord, my heart and my mind have been seared. I do not have it within me to do what you're describing to do. And so I'm asking you, would you come and would you heal the searing of my heart and mind? And would you begin to bring me into that place where I can be sensitive to what you want me to be sensitive to? Will you change my heart so that I can stand between the porch and the altar for your people? Will you, will you change what's happening in my heart? Will you give me the tears of intercession? Will you give me the brokenness that I need to have for my family? Some of you in this room today have family who are not Christian. Does it bother you that they're on their way to hell? Do you understand the reality? Hell is a real place. And it's for eternity. And if they're not saved, they will be lost forever. But it's hard to even awaken a person to begin to be concerned about their own personal salvation, let alone the salvation of family members. See, we can't stir this up in ourselves. But we can go before the Lord and begin to beg him to stir it up in us. See, this work of salvation is a supernatural process. It's not something that comes out of us. It's something that comes out of the heart of God. So if we want our hearts to be healed, it's a work that Jesus is going to have to do in us. But we're going to have to recognize that suffocation of indifference that is already in our spirit. We're going to have to recognize that we're not moved by tragedy anymore. We're going to have to recognize that things happen around us that should not be happening. But we don't have any thoughts or feelings about it. That's not going to change until we ask the Lord Jesus to remove this suffocating blanket that have, of indifference that has fallen over our souls so that we can begin to pray. Look, I learned this a long time ago. People only pray because they have to pray. If you don't have to pray, you may pray, but it's not going to be prayers with real passion. Because your heart doesn't hurt. You don't feel the need. The Holy Spirit has to come and begin to do a supernatural work in our hearts to cause us to hate sin and to cause us to hate the results of sin and to see how it's twisted and tormented our own lives and the lives of other people and now the life of our nation. There has to be a rising up in the spirit 
to quicken our hearts so that we can do what he's saying to us. Rend your hearts. I can't rend my heart today. The word rend is simply tear. Rip it. Well, I can't rip my heart. Can you rip yours? This is a work the Spirit of God has to do in us. But we have to first recognize that the work needs to be done. There has to be a consciousness of our indifference. Of our lack of passion. Most of us have learned to intellectualize everything. And if we can understand it, we can handle it. I don't want to live that way anymore. I'm not a man who lives by his intellect. I'm a man who lives by my spirit. We have a mind. We have a spirit. We have a body. Everything we do is controlled either by our mind, our spirit, or our flesh. The flesh rises up and says to our body, what do you want? Oh, you want that? Let's go get it. Your body demands of your mind what it wants and it shouts and it screams and it says, if I don't have this, I'm going to die. You have to give it to me. And the flesh wants wickedness. I don't want to live by my mind and I don't want to live by my flesh. I want to live by the spirit of Jesus that lives in me. But if we have starved the spirit of Christ, not spent time reading the word, not spent time being really honest with God about who we are. Our flesh will take over and we will be run by what our flesh wants. And our hearts will be hardened. Now, by by spirit, I don't mean emotions. Please understand. I'm talking about the moving presence of God that comes into a man or woman's life and combines with the spirit that God put in us to say, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ and I want to be established in his kingdom. I want to be firm and solid in his kingdom. I've made that decision, as have many of you. But that's not enough. We have to then also cry out and say, this indifference, this suffocating indifference of my heart has to be broken. It has to be removed. My heart has to be rent for the lost. Until that happens, we're dead in the water. I'll show you why. It is not until we come to verse 18... Then the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. When you are doing what is being described now, you are asking him to remove that suffocating indifference of your heart. And you are saying, Jesus, bring me through this and let me have your heart. And as you receive that heart of Christ, you will begin to experience God being jealous for you. 
You'll begin to experience God saying, don't go there. Don't do that. Don't say that. Give me your heart. And as you give him the right to come and exercise his authority and his will in your life, you will begin to experience God as a jealous God saying, I want you. (laughs) And it says he will take pity on his people. Verse 19, the Lord will reply to them, I am sending you grain, new wine, and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. So he's saying, look, if you will go through this process of grief, of rending your heart, if you will allow me to remove this suffocating indifference in your heart, I will come and I will be your provision. Verse 25, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. Any of you here today saddened by what has happened in your past? Broken over what you have lost? I am. And the Lord has promised that if I will go through this process with him, he will restore what has been stolen from me. And then we come to verse 28. This is the transition into the new covenant. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. He's saying that the process we need to go through in order to receive the outward anointing of the Holy Spirit is to allow the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and begin to awaken us and remove the indifference from our hearts and give us the ability to pray. I'm telling you now, to pray is a gift given to us by the Holy Spirit. You can pray dead prayers. You can pray intellectual prayers that don't go any higher than the ceiling. You can pray for victory over sin. Go no higher than the ceiling. Until you begin to humble your heart before God and ask him to remove the indifference from your spirit, the hardness from your heart. Until you confess that before him. Until you confess the anger and the bitterness. Until you confess the hopelessness of your heart. I spoke with a woman and her husband this last week. In fact, I had dinner with them. She said to me, Pastor, Do you have a sense of dread in your heart? I said, yes. She said, what is that? I do too. I feel like something bad is about to happen to our nation. I'm very uncomfortable. I said, you don't call yourself a Christian, but you're hearing from the Holy Spirit. He's trying to get your attention. Until we let the Holy Spirit begin to get our attention and turn us away from the bitterness and the anger and the busyness and all the deadness that we participate in constantly. Until our hearts are healed of that searing and we begin to cry out 
The anointing of the Holy Spirit does not come. He says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. I believe you and I will see the moon being turned to blood. And we will see the sun turned to darkness. And we will know that Jesus is coming. But some people, when they see that, the scriptures tell us, will shake their fists at God and curse him. Those are the ones who have never had the veil of indifference removed from their hearts. And now suddenly their life is interrupted and they're bitter and angry because they can't have their way anymore. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then comes chapter 3, verse 13. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come and trample the grapes, for the vine press is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened. The stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. There is an inward and an outward work of the Holy Spirit. The inward work of the Holy Spirit is to cause us to begin to repent of our indifference. To begin to cry out to him and say, would you remove the scarring and searing of my soul from my sin? Will you heal me? I have sinned against you. Will you heal me? And a crying out until that experience of quickening in the spirit takes place. Now as the quickening of the spirit begins to come to us and we begin to enter into serious prayer. Behavior changing prayer. Where we're no longer hardened in our sin. But we're open to what the Spirit of God wants to say to us. This inward work of the Spirit must go forward. And difficulties will come and trials will come and testings will come in finances, in health, in relationships. In every area we're going to have these things come to us. And the Holy Spirit is allowing these painful things to come into our life. For us to decide that we will not turn away from Jesus. We will not grow angry in our spirit. We will trust him. This is the inner work necessary before the outer power of the Holy Spirit comes. There is the inner work of cleansing and purifying. There is the outer work of power and deliverance. We all want the hour work of power and deliverance. We want to see the sick healed and the dead raised. We want to see great things happen. We want revival to spread. That's not going to happen until there's been a people who are willing to undergo the breaking of the inner life. And the healing of the inner life. The humbling of the inner life. John 15 verse 1 says, I am the vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. 
So he's saying, look, if you're going to live in the suffocating indifference, the day will finally come when I will simply cut you off. And you will not be brought into the presence of God. You will be you will be put out of the presence of God because you were unwilling to comprehend the coming of the spirit to you. He's. Cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. The fruit is righteousness. The fruit is righteousness that God is looking for. You can call it the gift of the spirit, love, joy, peace. What is all of that? That's righteousness. It's walking and no longer continuing to rebel against God in our sin. It is gaining the full victory by the power of the blood of Jesus. If we don't. Enter into that victory. It's not because the victory is not available to us. It's because we're choosing to make excuses to continue walking in our darkness. He says, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. And that word in the Greek is purge. Now, when I take my clothes and I throw them in the washer and I put soap in, what's happening? Is something being added to my clothes or taken away from my clothes? Something's being taken away, isn't it? The dirt is being purged out of my clothing. Sometimes it takes Clorox. The dirt has to be removed. It's purging. It's removal. You never grow into purity. People say to me, Pastor, I'm trying hard to be pure. Well, give it up. You can't grow into purity. You cut off something to be pure. Purging is removing something. It is cutting it off. A plant that is blighted. I was raised on a farm. You didn't spray insecticide on a blighted plant. You cut the blight out of the plant so that the healthy plant could continue, recover, and grow and produce. Sin cannot be grown out of. Sin is cut off. And part of the struggle we're having is this suffocating indifference causes us to be casual about our sin. And so it's continuing to sear our hearts, mar our vestige, separate us from Almighty God. He says, you are already clean because the word I've spoken to you remain in me, abide in me. And I will abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. 
If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So please. The beginning place. Is to just simply discipline ourselves. I remember when I made the decision. That I would begin to pray. I set the time. One hour a day. I set the alarm clock. And after I had prayed for about 10 minutes. I'd said everything several times I had to say. And I had nothing more to say. And it was only 10 minutes in. And I said I'm in trouble. How can I pray for an hour? I have nothing to say to you God. And then I had to start getting really honest. And finally I've. Began to read the Psalms aloud to him because I'd heard that the Psalms were prayers. So I began to read the Psalms aloud to him. And this torture went on day after day, one hour a day, when I didn't want to pray, but I had to pray. I knew that my soul's condition was going to deteriorate until I would completely leave the Christian faith if I did not pray. But my heart was hard. I didn't even know at that point if God really existed. I knew religion because I was a religionist. But I never really met Jesus. But I was in trouble. And I had to know if Jesus was real. As time passed, that hour began to grow. Into many hours every day. And my whole life changed. The place to begin. Is at the beginning. Where you get on your knees. And you begin to confess to God. Who you really are. And you don't even know yet who you really are. It means asking Jesus if he would come and uncover your heart and tell you who you are and let you see your life as he sees it and ask that he begin to give to you the gift of tears, the gift of brokenness, the gift of humility before him. And if you pursue that course very long, you will soon begin to have your whole life turned upside down. And God will begin to come to you. And you'll begin to experience his jealousy. He doesn't want you to give yourself to darkness anymore. He doesn't want you to give yourself to anger or bitterness anymore. He doesn't want you to give yourself to the clubs or to the to the alcohol or to the pornography or to whatever it is that's. Fighting against your soul. But if you don't take that initial step. You will be in that suffocating indifference. Where you will be miserable. But you'll never break out of it. Because only God can break you out of it. Salvation is a supernatural act of God. But you have to go after him first. And if you go after him. He'll come after you. 
Tell me right now. If you stay the way you are right now, are you heaven bound or hell bound? Every man and every woman has to answer that question honestly. And then we have to get on our face before God and we have to begin doing business with God. The work is his. It's not by man's works. We're not saved by man's works. We're saved by grace. We're saved by the blood of Jesus. But if we keep ducking and dodging the blood, how can we be saved? We have to finally come and say, Jesus, I want to be a part of your family. I want your kingdom established in my heart. And then the real work begins as we, day by day, go into the prayer closet, reading the scriptures aloud to the Lord, praying, struggling, asking that this indifference of our heart can be broken, that we could be released and set free. And he will do it. I want this anointing of the Holy Spirit spoken of at Pentecost. But remember, Pentecost came after the crucifixion of Jesus and after the crucifixion in the spirit of his disciples. They had to suffer the painful collapse of their dreams. They had to suffer the painful, horrifying shame of seeing Jesus spread high and wide on the cross. They had to see their hopes dashed. They went through all of this pain and anguish and then... For 52 days, they met every day in prayer, waiting for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And finally on Pentecost, he came. What is Pentecost? Pentecost is the Feast of Weeks. It is the celebration of the giving of the law by Moses at Mount Sinai. Pentecost was saying you're no longer under the law. You're now under the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is poured out. We are under the spirit of God, not the law. So by keeping in the external way, things that you think will make you holy will not make you holy. They have to flow out of your heart from the Holy Spirit's presence. And you have to come into that prayer closet and confess who you are and get very honest with God and very direct with God. Believe me, God can handle anything you can throw at him. Tell him how mad you are. Tell him how hurt you are. Tell him the bitterness of your heart. Tell him the sin you're committing. Ask him to give you the victory. And he will come as a jealous God and say, I want you. You belong to me. I love you. I cherish you. We're the National Prayer Chapel. We best be moving on into prayer. Because the Holy Spirit's not going to come in this place until we become a praying people who've finally gotten honest with ourselves and with God and with each other. I was very pleased today to hear some of you finally being honest about your spiritual condition. See, your spiritual condition does not concern me if you're seeking after Jesus because he'll heal you. 
He'll restore you. He's a jealous God. He wants you. What concerns me is when there's this suffocating indifference and it doesn't matter. I'll just go about my way. I'm, I'm okay. No, we're not okay. I'm not okay. And you're not okay. We need Jesus. Almighty King. I'm asking now in the name of Jesus that the suffocating indifference of our hearts would be broken by your Holy Spirit. I'm asking that you would begin with me. Break the indifference of my heart. Break the indifference of my brother and sister's heart. Lord, we need one thing. We need you, Jesus. I plead your blood today over my life and the life of these precious ones. And over the radio congregation, Lord, I plead your blood today. I plead that this week will be a week of stirring and calling and awakening by your mighty power. Not by human devised plans, but by your spirit's plan. I pray in your holy name. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us. I love you, my brother, my sister. I'll talk to you soon. Of his glory.